I want us to go back to the book of Romans. I know we've spent a great deal of time here in Romans 1. Uh, and that's, that's uh, I, I don't apologize for that because Paul's greeting here in Romans is 10 times longer than his normal greeting. Uh, we'll remember that uh, the churches in Rome, they were not established by Paul. And so he's unpackaging a great deal. Uh, his uh, desire, as you well know, uh, as we've discussed, Paul's desire is for Rome to be a launching pad for the spreading of the gospel web. His desire is to go into Spain and uh, he wants them to be a part of this logistically and also financially. And so he's setting forth for them and um, it's necessary for him to set forth a very long theology, understanding of who he is, this gospel that he is proclaiming because he did not establish the church at Rome. So they did not have the benefit of those other churches that Paul did establish where he spent months and years with them and they had the opportunity uh, to see uh, Unfold and to hear the preaching and teaching of Paul to understand this gospel that, that he is preaching. And so the church at Rome has not had that benefit. So this is a very long and lengthy and robust kind of letter that, that Paul is having to write to set forth his credentials and the gospel that he will be proclaiming as he moves west. And so today we, uh, after the greeting section, um, we come to probably the most uh, probably the most substantive part of, of Romans 1 because it really sets the stage for the unpackaging of this gospel that is necessary for the redemption of all creation. And Paul is going to establish once and for all the depravity of man, that all mankind is uh, a sinner, that we are all crippled and corrupted by sin, that every individual with no exception uh, has the need for a savior. And so this is a very heavy, uh, this is a passage, verses 18 through 32. The, these are passages that could be, be easily overlooked and it'd be very easy for me to say, well, I'm not gonna deal with that. I'm just gonna jump on to chapter two. But this is vitally important for anyone that proclaims the gospel. And Paul understands this for anyone that's going to teach and proclaim the gospel. There must be a firm establishment of the depravity of man, that we are all sinners, that there is none who thirst for God. So we're going to entertain Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 32. That's going to be our focal passage this morning. It's really the beginning of a much longer section that will end in chapter three and verse 20, discovering, laying this foundation that everyone is in need of a savior. Lewis Sloten is a man that, a young man that you may have heard his story before, uh, but on May 21st, 1946, uh, originally Lewis Sloten had been recruited, this brilliant Canadian, uh, brilliant young man, Canadian physicist, chemist, double PhD, was recruited to be part of the Manhattan Project, recruited by the U.S. military to help them to create and develop um, a nuclear nuclear weaponry system. So after this, after the war, and uh, Sloten continued to work uh, there at Los Alamos National Lab Laboratory in New Mexico, and he was conducting an experiment one day, this May 21st date in 1946. He was conducting an experiment uh, trying, to, uh, trying to start a fission process. It's an experiment he had done dozens of times before, but here they were in this laboratory and he had seven colleagues that were around him watching him uh, bring, this, bring this plutonium core to a place of, of the, the start of fission. Uh, not, not full criticality, 
criticality, but, but just to a place of, of fission. And the way he was doing it, he was taking a half sphere of beryllium and he was lowering it with his left hand, making use of a thumb hole. He was, uh, he was lowering it over this, this, this 14 pound plutonium core. And it was supported by uh, other half. This core was supported underneath by a half sphere of beryllium as well. But Sloten, this young man, was, was lowering it over that plutonium core. And normally, in most experiments, they, when this was being done, there were shims that were used, little wedges that were used to keep the upper sphere separated from the lower. Sloten instead always used a screwdriver. Many had observed that it was reckless. But as he would lower that, that beryllium sphere over, he would use the flat head screwdriver to create the separation. But on this particular day, for whatever reason, the screwdriver slipped and the beryllium sphere shut full over the core. It was an immediate prompt moment criticality. Everyone in the room said there was a blue haze that filled that laboratory the ionization of the atmosphere. Everyone felt the heat wave. It only lasted about half a second because Sloten had the mindfulness to immediately throw off that top sphere, but the damage had already been done. Severe radiation poisoning. In fact, Sloten received the highest measure of gamma rays that anyone had ever received. He died an agonizing death nine days later. Scientists long had referred to that process of criticality. They had referred to what Sloten was doing, that experiment. They had referred to that as, as tickling the dragon's tail. That if you do it enough, if you do it often enough, something bad is going to happen. Interestingly enough, nine months earlier, Harry Doglian, a colleague of Sloten's, had died of the same thing, a similar experiment with the same core, the same plutonium core in the same laboratory. He died 25 days later after his accident. Before this plutonium core had been melted down, it was intended to be, the, be America's third atom bomb, this core. Before it was melted down, it had received the name, the demon's core because of those that it had killed. Every time I come across the story of Lewis Sloten and that accident that occurred in that laboratory, I, I can't help but think of Romans 1 and chap, chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, where, where it describes the nature of, of sin. The nature and character of sin, going all the way back to Adam and, and humanity has, has continued just like, just like Adam, all of humanity in, in, in history has continued to tickle the tail of the dragon. To tickle the tail of sin. To a place of, of criticality, and not just to a place of criticality where, where all mankind is condemned, but to a place where the wrath of God has been evoked. 
Paul would write in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in, in unrighteousness. It's little wonder as we hear about the wrath of God as Paul begins to write about the wrath of God against sin and what sin has accomplished among humankind. We're not su surprised, are we? And, and we probably appreciate all the more what Paul said back in verse 15, why he is so, why he is so eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says, for I'm not ashamed of, of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and, and also to the Greek. As I pointed out last week, our need is to understand this, this idea of salvation being so much bigger than, than, just, than just missing hell and making it to heaven. That all of, all of creation, Paul's going to write in, in the Roman letter, all of creation groans for its redemption. There is a brokenness to our created order that, that finds its root in sin. For in it, verse 17, Paul says, for in it, that is the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. I explained last week that this idea of the righteousness of God, a very simple explanation is that the righteousness of God is the process of God making the world right, righting the world, that the world has gone wrong. It's like a ship that is, that is listing, like uh, we have to right the ship, bring it back upright. The righteousness of God is, is working through the faith of his people, the, uh, the faith of his plan of salvation, going all the way back to Abraham as he's going to unfold it in the rest of Romans. But this righteousness of God is trying to, to right the ship of creation. And what I want us to see this morning, as we just focus on these verses through the end of, of chapter one there in verse 32. What Paul is setting forth is the total depravity of man. And what he discusses in these verses, what he sets forth is an, is an indictment against humanity in its entirement, in its entirety. And what I would ask you to do this morning is to listen to the message in full because these are hard words. These are difficult words. And I see and I understand how they could be taken wrongly if they are not heard in proper context. So if you hear something this morning that, that you find offensive, before you get up and walk out, I want you to listen to the full message in its entirety because it's not about any one kind of people. It's not about any one person. It's about all of us. And we need to hear it as such if we are going to gain the benefit of what Paul is saying to us. Now, as Paul begins talking about the depravity of man, the depravity of humanity, I want you to see how he structures this. He begins by setting forth the creator's design. Paul is intentionally here in these verses from 18 to 32, he is using the creation language, going back to the book of, of Genesis. And the emphasis is, is that God has a creative design. 
that God has created in a way in his mind when he created it, he has a design for how life is to be lived, how he wants his world, his creation to operate. Well, let's just, let's pick it up here in verse 18. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who, who suppress the truth in, in unrighteousness. Now, the wrath of God, when we hear this, we don't need to, in our mind, go, oh, no, now he's talking about the Old Testament God. No, the, uh, the wrath of God, listen, this is, not some, this is not some childish, angry God that is lashing out like the gods of Greek mythology. Whenever we see this word, the wrath of God, especially as Paul will use it in Romans, we need to understand that this is associated with the righteousness of God, him making the world right. This righteousness of God that is being exercised, he's going to talk about it more in, when we get to chapter four, he's going to show how the faith of Abraham and how the faith of, of us as believers today, as followers of Christ, how this is a part of God's righteousness, while, how he is using the faith of his people to make right the world. And so this, this wrath that we, we read about, we need to understand it, that it is a part of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God, yes, is, is indeed about grace, but it's also about judgment. And when we talk about the judgment of God, wrath is a part of that judgment. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven that is, it has cosmic consequences. Those that are living out acts, those who, who behave in ways that are unrighteous and ungodly, there are cosmic consequences they, that will not be denied. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Revealed there is present tense. This is something that is played out in the entirety of, of human history. You can look at, look back, and you can see how, how the wrath of God eventually catches up with those who pursue ungodliness and unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, those who deliberately reject the truth of God, those who, those who deliberately and intentionally live according to their own, their own devices, who do and live in a way that is pleasing in their own sight, He's saying those are, those are intentionally contributing to the wronging of the ship that I'm trying to make right. And so by their actions, their deeds, their, their behaviors, they, they contribute to this unrighteousness that I'm trying to right. Because that which is known by God, he says in verse 19, because that which is known by God is evident within them. Remember the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom writer in chapter three, in verse 11, the, the wisdom writer says, for God has written eternity into our hearts. That means there is something innate. We're not like the animals of the field. There is something intuitive. There is something innate about us. We can deny it all we want. But there is something intuitive and innate within us that, that there is something above us, that there is something transcendent about, about this created order, about this universe. There is something bigger than us to which I'm accountable. That's eternity being written in our heart. I know I've told you before that as a 
college student, as a young man that, that was lost and searching for meaning and purpose in life. I, I, I wasn't raised in church. I never walked inside a church till I was 21. But as I was beginning this, this journey to search for purpose in life, I had, a, I had a feeling that it had something to do with God, but I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what that meant. And I was so miserable. You know what I decided when I was about 20? I decided I was going to be an atheist. You know, in hindsight, I think I must have been the worst atheist to ever live. I was not a very good atheist. You know why? Because all I thought about was God. I was an abysmal atheist. I couldn't stop thinking about what I said I don't even believe in. And when I saw Ecclesiastes chapter three and verse 11, eternity, God has said eternity in their heart. I said, yes, that's right. I get that. It sets us on a quest and a journey. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, verse 20, and divine nature have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made so that they're without excuse. I was, I was without excuse. I knew there was a God. I just didn't know what it was supposed to look like. And, and Paul doesn't flesh out what all that's supposed to look like because you and I both know that, that Paul understands that God is not fully known apart from Jesus Christ. That's the part I didn't yet understand. I may look around in the universe, I may have a sense that there is something bigger than me, that there is something transcendent, that there is a creator, but I, I couldn't figure out what that looked like until I was introduced to the person of, of Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't know if your hesitation in becoming a follower of Christ is intellectual. That was part mine. But the issue is never a lack of knowledge of God. Of something greater than us that's at work. What is troubling here and what Paul is dealing with is not a people who have a lack of knowledge about God. It's a people who have failed to acknowledge God. For even though they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were, were darkened. In other words, borrowing from the language of Genesis, talking about our creator, how he created us. He designed us, created us in his own image. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. We are created in the, in the image of God. We are created to worship him. We are created to be a people of worship. We're not like the animals in the field. We're aware of a creator. We are designed to worship him. We are designed to honor him. We are designed to give thanks to him. And where the, where the corruption takes place, where the wheels start falling off and when creation is no longer what it was created to be is when we stop honoring God, when we stop worshiping God, when we stop giving thanks to God as we are designed to do, you know what happens then? Is we deify ourselves. When I stop seeking to honor the creator, when I stop worshiping the creator, when I stop giving thanks to the creator, then I become the creator. I become 
I take on the divine role of creating my own world, my own beliefs, my own desires. Which leads to a second thing that is necessary in our understanding of what, of this depravity of man, this model of it that Paul is setting forth. It's an understanding and what is foundational to this, and don't miss this church, what is foundational to what Paul is saying is that God, God has designed things to work a certain way. He has given us principles and precepts of how the, wor- how the world is to operate. But here's the issue, the created's distortion. There is a distortion that has taken place where the created, that's us, have supplanted the creator. Now look how Paul describes it here in beginning in verse 23. He says, and they exchanged, this is, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now in verse 23, and they exchanged, this is gonna be a redundant phrase that Paul will use in this section, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image or an idol. In the form of corruptible mankind, of four, of of birds, of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So we as a people who are designed to worship God, to honor God, to recognize him, to give thanks to him. Instead, we have exchanged that for the glory, uh, that the glory of that incorruptible God. We've exchanged that glory for an image, an earthly image, an earthly form, an earthly idol. And here's the irony. We go back and read the idolatry of Israel in the Old Testament and we laugh and we chuckle at their shallowness, their immaturity uneducated people, uninformed like us, and we laugh at them carving idols out of wood, stone. We chuckle at such. Look down our noses at their naivety, but we in fact have carved idols of our own, not of wood, not of stone, but we have carved for ourselves as a culture these idols of sex and power and money. The same issues are on the forefront of Rome. Therefore, God gave them up. He's going to use that phrase three times. It doesn't mean that God gave up on them because what, what Paul sets forth in the remainder of these verses, all the way to chapter three and verse 20, what Paul is setting forth is that these actions are meant to bring, bring repentance. This action that God has taken is for the purpose of restoration, the hopes of bringing you back among his people. For God, therefore God, verse 24, therefore God gave them up to vile impurity and the lust of their hearts so that their bodies would not be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's it in a nutshell. That's, what, that's the problem of all humanity. That's the indictment against every human being as we have exchanged our worship of the creator for the creature. We have exchanged our worship of him for the worship of ourselves. For they exchanged, verse 25, the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over, there's that term again, 
And these are just the consequences of these choices and decisions. It's as if God is saying, yeah, okay, if if you want to ignore me, if you don't want to honor me, if you don't want to worship me, listen, you go live your own life. You will see the wrath of God played out in this. You will see the consequences, the cosmic consequences of these kind of choices and decisions that you make. So he gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, the men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so as Paul is is setting forth for the people to understand the depravity of humankind, he chooses, in his mind, he chooses same, same gender sex, same gender sexual expression. It's always the practice. It's not the predisposition. It's not the desire. It's the practice. It's always behavior in Romans 1 that is played out. So Paul sees this behavior, same sex, same gender sexual relations. He said, when you talk about the depravity of man, God giving them over to their their own desires, this, this is the penultimate of this. This is what this looks like. Now what you and I as the church have to guard against, in a culture that, that endorses same gender sexuality, same, same gender sexual expression that, that pressures us not just to accept it, but to bless it. To, extra, to exercise a kind of tolerance that offers no moral evaluation To say otherwise than acceptance and blessing and accommodation is to be called narrow-minded. To be called uninformed, to be called bigoted, to be called a hater. But if we're going to hold forth the teachings of God's word in this matter, and I mean the historical grammatical understanding of this text for 2,000 years. We can't sit here as a church and say, well, Paul didn't know then what we know today about biology and genetic factors. Paul was uninformed when it came to biological and genetic factors. That's not the issue Paul is dealing with. Because you see, the apostle Paul has a greater appreciation of who we are as people created in the image of God, maybe more so than we do ourselves. In fact, our greatest intellects. Behavioral and social scientists who want to reduce us down to being nothing more than animals in the field. You feel this, you have this desire, that's how you're made, that's how you're wired. You follow your intuitive desires. It's a diminishment of your personhood. No longer are you free will moral beings that can make choices and decisions that honor the design of God in our sexual expression. Now then, you're just another animal in the field wired to follow your your instincts. Paul's not dealing with biological factors, genetic factors. Paul has an appreciation of who we are as a people created in the image of God, regardless of DNA. Paul knows that, (laughs) Paul wouldn't say it this way, but Paul, the reality is Paul's not even dealing with it. But you and I are not, you and I are not bound by genetic predispositions. You and I are not puppets on strings of DNA. 
You and I are free, free will moral beings and we can make, we have the capacity to make choices and decisions and those choices and decisions reflecting the design of God. And listen, th this is not piling on to, to people of a, of a same gender sexuality orientation. I, it's not even talking about, you know, Paul deals with heterosexual sin as well. And that's an issue we got to address as well as a church. Paul is no less serious about heterosexual sin than he is using homosexual sin in practice here as an example of the depravity of man. It is a very slippery slope that we have entered into as a culture. And we can't just say, well, Paul's speaking about this and against it because he's a Jew and this was disgusting to Jews. No, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, nor, is he, nor is he taking a shot at Nero, who himself practiced a homosexual lifestyle. It's not that. Paul, remember, we have to stay touched. We have to stay in, in touch with this foundation that he's establishing that God has a design for how the world is to operate. If we're just gonna talk about sexual expression, he has a design for how sexual, how sexual expression is to look among the people of God. And for 2000 years, the church has had a history. It's only in recent years that you even start, that you have started seeing in, in theological literature, this idea that same gender sexuality is somehow an acceptable alternative lifestyle. You go back to the early church fathers, you will not find that. You don't find it in scripture with the apostles. You will not find it in the early church fathers. You come up to medieval thought. You will not find it in medieval thought. You come up to the reformation. You will not find it in reformation thought. It is always considered an example of the depravity of man. And yet you and I have tremendous pressure from a culture that says otherwise. What Paul is setting forth, in fact, in using the creation language of, of Genesis 1, God created them male and female. Notice it wasn't man and woman. Specifically, he used the terms male and female to display the complementary nature of maleness and femaleness to one another. To one another. That this is the theological fulfillment, this maleness to femaleness being a complementary comp confirmation of the design of God. The whole argument Paul is making, and don't miss this, don't get sidetracked by it. The whole argument that Paul is making is that God has put boundaries in place. And there will always be people that, are, that want to erase the boundaries. Don't, we can't sit here 2000 years later and say, Paul, you know, Paul's just unfamiliar. Paul's not very uh, familiar with the, with, the, with the orientation issues of the day. Paul doesn't understand LGBTQ and, and all that that goes together. It, but, but that's ludicrous. You know, that, that, that was happening in Roman culture. In fact, it was the accepted, I mean, we hear these things today and a great many people are saying, oh my, what, my goodness, what's happening? And, and, but in Rome, it was acceptable behavior. So we can't say Paul's just uninformed on issues that, that we are facing today. There has always been those that want to erase the boundaries, that want to do away with the design that God 
has set forth. In fact, this, this, this continual desire of our culture to, to erase the lines and the boundaries, listen, that's just an attempt to get rid of the boundary maker. If there's no boundary maker, then, then what? I'm God. I can make my own lines. But we've got to see the slippery slope that we enter into. I'm going to give you the extreme example of this from a scholar. There's actually an ethicist, Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University, who argues for bestiality. He said, if there's, if there's going to be no lines, if there's going to be no boundaries, and there should be no lines and boundaries between, between mankind and the species and the, and the animals. And in his thinking, you know what he calls, if you disagree with that, if you disagree with what he holds forth, you know what he calls you? You're a speciest. You're guilty of speciesism. Racism, racist, you're a specious, speciest, speciesism. That's the slippery slope that we have entered into. There's another boundary, display of boundary confusion in our culture, and that's the movement to actually encourage even children to declare themselves a gender other than the sex to which they were assigned at conception. According to a CBS News report, this is from CBS News, August 22nd, 2017, a preschool teacher read two children's books about transgenderism to her class. One observer said the kindergartners came home very confused about whether or not you can pick your gender, whether or not they really were a boy or a girl. Listen, church, again, if we're going to be rooted in scripture, the choose, the choose your own gender myth is a lie. It's a lie. There are boundaries and you know what they are. The boundaries are the X and Y chromosomes, which determine whether one is a male or a female. There is a dangerous and anti-scientific trend toward an outright denial of biological identification of gender. Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist, no less, at Penn State, and Emma Hilton, a developmental biologist at the University of Manchester, Manchester calls their own peers on the carpet. They say that biologists and medical professionals need to stand up for the empirical reality of biological sex. To do otherwise undermines public trust in science and is dangerously harmful to the most vulnerable. In fact, Dr. Paul R. McHugh, former psychiatrist in chief for John Hopkins Hospital and its current distinguished service professor of psychiatry said that, quote, transgenderism is a mental disorder that merits treatment and that sex change is biologically impossible and that people who promote sexual reassignment surgery are collaborating and promoting a mental disorder. Listen, Dr. McHugh is no lightweight. He has written seven books and at least 125 peer-reviewed medical journal articles. In fact, a new study has cited has shown that the suicide rate among transgendered people who had reassignment surgery is 20 times higher than the suicide rate among non-transgender people. Dr. McHugh says the idea of sex misalignment is simply mistaken. 
It does not correspond with the physical reality and it can lead to grim psychological outcomes. The assumption that one's gender is only in the mind regardless of anatomical reality has led some transgendered people to push for social acceptance and affirmation of their own subjective personal truth. Put plainly, sex change, he says, is a biological impossibility, said McHugh. All you become is a feminized man or a masculinized woman. Do you see what's happening here? You eliminate the boundaries, you eliminate the boundary maker, and you alone are God. A distortion by the creation against the creator. Before we become too smug and satisfied, we need to consider these final verses because it captures the complicit's demise. That's you, that's me. It says in verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are, he says, he captures even our favorite Baptist sin, they are gossips. You can laugh and take a breath on this if you want to. <laughs> Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, trustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice, again, always practice, those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. That is, we give up our moral authority. You do you. And we approve those who practice them. Remember Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter five and verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. But here's what Paul has done. He has built a rhetorical argument. He has set a wonderful theological news that captures each and every one of us. Because as Paul picks that one definitive sin to characterize the depraved mind of humankind, he knows what he's doing because every one of us read those verses that I read in that second point and we feel pretty good about ourselves. We say, that's not me. Thank goodness, that's not me. But you read the rest of that list. And I don't, I don't know about you, but, but when I read the rest of that list, all these other sins that he said were representative of, of the same depraved mind, maybe not, maybe not same gender sexual expression, may not be my sin. I don't know about you, but were there some sins that you saw there? I mean, I feel like I'm looking in a mirror when I read verses 29, 30. I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. And so in, in my judgment, as I, as I indict the one, I've indicted myself. I hope it has for you created an anticipation as it must have for those readers 2,000 years ago. 
You and I know the direction this is going to go after we get past chapter three and verse 20. But like Martin Luther, perhaps we've discovered today that sin is the knot that only God can untie. And there is an anticipation, I hope, among all of us that we are all the more eager after reading this indictment against all of us. It makes us all the more eager to find the solution that Paul will, will propose in the chapters ahead. Let's pray together. Father, we know the rest of the story. We know the good news of this gospel. We know that, that we fall short and come, that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We understand that we are in need of a savior and many of us, most of us prayerfully have, have made that decision to commit our lives to becoming a follower of you. And in that pursuit, we have known your redemption. We have known your grace and your mercy that you have set our lives on another path. But Father, I pray that as we go from this place, that this grace and this gospel might be the reality of our life, that others would see it in us, that they would experience it through us, that because we have known your grace, we will be a gracious people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.